Mike Osborne from the University of California at Santa Barbara's program for the history of science, technology, and medicine. And I'd like to welcome you uh, to a, an event that is sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation, as well as the College of Letters and Science at the University of California at Santa Barbara. This program is entitled New Visions of Nature, Science, and Religion. The program was designed to bring together experts not only in the sciences, but also in theology and even humanists like myself to engage in a dialogue about certain aspects of science and religion. Tonight, we'll be, our speakers will be engaging with the topic of altruism, that is doing good uh, to, for others, at least apparently doing good for others. Now, religion has a long tradition of being in American public life. And in fact, I was just noticing today when I left my office at the university that, that UCSB will be hosting toward the end of the month a conference entitled Modernity, Religion in China and Taiwan. So the topic of religion, even though for some of my students, I think they, they think that's something that they did in the Dark Ages, is very much with us today. Well, why are we here tonight? One of the reasons that we're here tonight is because 80 years ago, in 1925, in Dayton, Tennessee, there was a biology teacher by the name of John T. Scobes. He was found guilty of teaching human evolution. That was against the law, uh, the state law, in Tennessee. The trial, in sometimes called the monkey trial, was not just about the teaching of evolution in the public schools. It was, in fact, a media circus, as well as a controversy within the community of religious activists, specifically between conservative biblical fundamentalists on the one hand, and many Protestant denominations who, under the banner of what was called modernism then, 80 years ago, wanted to use historical, scientific, and social scientific tools to study the Bible as a literary text. The modernists then accepted evolution and felt it made their brand of religion timely and more relevant to what was then the modern world. Now at the trial, the lawyer William Jennings Bryan, he was the one defending the Tennessee law, made four arguments against evolution. And I'm bringing up the topic of evolution because although uh, it is not specifically the topic upon which our two speakers will speak tonight because they're more concerned with altruism, Darwin is there in both of the presentations. But at the trial then, William Jennings Bryan made four arguments against evolution, which were the following. Evolution, Darwinian evolution, contradicted the biblical account of creation. Number two, Darwin's survival of the fittest doctrine destroyed faith in God and love of others. Number three, the study of evolution diverted attention away from spirituality and socially useful pursuits. And finally, evolution, it was argued, was deterministic and really undermined efforts to reform society. Since that time in 1925, and we might even look to the late 19th century as well, the, the model of the relationship between science and religion has very much been, at least in the public sphere, driven by one of conflict. 
In other words, there is a war, as one book wrote, between science and religion. I think, however, our goals in bringing these speakers here tonight is to try and think as hard as we can to get beyond this model of a conflict. Now, my own career as a historian of science and Professor Schloss, who will be speaking first, his, his own career benefited from something that happened in 1957, and that was uh, the launch of Sputnik, that uh, satellite that the Russians put up that seemed to show that America was behind in the space race. I benefited from that, and many people in the sciences benefited from that because the U.S. government infused much money into the teaching of foreign languages, but also science and technology. And it's about that time, so Professor Schloss tells me, our first speaker, that we began to see a resurgence of tensions between science and religion. So one of the questions that is asked tonight by both speakers is the following. Is nature a guide, a sufficient guide, or a partial guide for human actions and human choices? I'd like to invite our first speaker up then, Professor Jeffrey Schloss, who is a professor of biology at Westmont College in Montecito. Professor Schloss has been a Danforth Foundation Fellow, and he's also been an American Association for the Advancement of Science, Science Communication Fellow. He is an, an eclectic scholar who works at the intersections between ecology and evolutionary theory. And as you'll find out in a moment, he has particular interests in altruism and morality. His talk tonight is entitled, Doing Well by Doing Good? Evolution, Religion, and the Internalization of Altruism. Professor Schloss. Well, thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here, and I want to talk with you this evening about one of the most fascinating scientific detective stories that's been going on over the past generation. And in fact, it relates to point number two uh, that Professor Osborne mentioned in the Scopes trial, the idea that Darwinian theory somehow uh, undermines, by virtue of the notion of uh, survival of the fittest, the idea that we ought to and in fact can expend ourselves sacrificially on the basis of one another. That's been called the altruism question, which 30 years ago Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson described as quote-unquote the central theoretical issue in evolutionary biology. And just a few months ago in a follow-up article 30 years later, he says it is still an enduring unresolved paradox in evolutionary theory. Now this paradox, it turns out, is also the central emphasis of many of the world's great religious traditions. And in the Christian tradition, for example, uh, altruistic love or agape is viewed as the chief aim or end of human existence and is viewed as the fulfillment of the moral law. So we have a fascinating issue here, one that is pregnant with possibilities for constructive conversation, but also tensions. What I want to do is, first of all, describe briefly what the question is, then survey some of the uh, really exciting proposals that have arisen and fallen to explain uh, altruism from a biological perspective and then close with an integrative proposal. So first of all, the question of altruism, what is it? Well, from a biologist standpoint, altruistic behavior is any behavior that confers biological benefit to the recipient 
at a net cost to the actor. So this is an issue of consequences and not motives. Eva Wilson describes it as genetically self-destructive behavior. Mother Teresa would be a classic example of an altruistic life. No offspring, spend her entire life working for and investing in others. And why is it a problem? Well, Darwin himself said that any characteristic which was altruistic in this regard would quote-unquote annihilate my theory because natural selection could not explain such a trait. More recently, uh, the social biologist David Barish has said, if natural selection is both sufficient and true, it's impossible for a genuinely beneficent behavior to evolve. And yet, it looks like we have such behaviors. So what do we do about it? First of all, from the perspective of natural science. There were a couple of seminal theoretical breakthroughs several years ago that came after 150 years of really being perplexed by this problem. The first one was proposed by a worker named W.D. Hamilton, and it's called kin selection theory. And it simply says this, if I invest myself sacrificially in another individual, and they're related to me, in a sense it's not a reproductive sacrifice, because my genes still make it into the next generation. And this can be uh, formalized uh, by the equation uh, the cost to the actor can be stably established if it's less than or equal to the benefit uh, received by the recipient times the index of genetic relatedness. J.B.S. Haldane was doodling on a napkin in a pub one night, and he says, Aha! I'll gladly give my life for two brothers or eight cousins. Uh, that would be kin selection theory formalized. I have to tell you, actually, that story is, uh, has several versions. The original version that is in the older textbooks is that Haldane said, I'll give my life for two brothers or four cousins. But that's wrong. Uh, so it's been corrected in the more recent textbooks. Now, clearly, kin selection doesn't explain all cooperative behavior because humans, especially, and other organisms cooperate with non-genetically related kin. So several years later, um, Robert Trivers proposed another selective uh, entity analogous in the cost-benefit analysis uh, logic to kin selection, where, uh, which involves the cost to the actor has to be less than or equal to the benefit that the actor receives back times the likelihood there'll be a compensatory return. Uh, Trivers called this reciprocal altruism theory, and basically it reduces to, I'll give you a back rub if you give me a back rub. Now, these two seemingly uh, simple proposals have turned out to revolutionize studies of animal behavior from an evolutionary standpoint, so much so that they've been referred to as a second Darwinian revolution. And this Darwinian revolution was characterized by the assertion, at least initially, for the first 15 or 20 years after it was launched in 1975 under the title Sociobiology, it was characterized as being sufficient to explain everything. There are dozens and dozens of quotes I could give you, but here's a particularly striking one by Richard Alexander, who wrote an influential book called The Biology of Moral Systems. Alexander says, I suspect that nearly all humans believe it is a normal part of the functioning of every human individual now and then to assist someone else in the realization of that person's own interest, that is to say the other person, to the actual net expense of those of the altruists. What this greatest intellectual revolution of the century tells us is that despite our intuitions, there's not a shred of evidence to support this view of beneficence. There do not seem to be any remaining reasons for regarding morality as normally expressed as necessarily self-sacrificing or for invoking anything other than nepotism and favoritism 
to account for human societal structure. So this was a pretty dismal view of human social structure and morality in general. However, it turns out that uh, kind of swashbuckling triumphalist rhetoric notwithstanding, the revolution has ended up to be incomplete, even in the view of its most passionate supporters. And incomplete for two reasons. First of all, the notion of kin selection has been revisited recently. And it turns out this is an interesting story in, in itself, which I'm not going to tell you in detail, but it turns out not to explain what everybody thought it was going to explain. It has been dramatically overly extended by human social scientists, particularly political scientists, in an attempt to explain group conflict, in complete violation of the mathematics of the model, by the way. But even within uh, the biological community, it doesn't work to explain even the entities that we thought it explained, like sacrificial castes and social insects. And in a really scandalous article just published a couple of months ago in the journal uh, Social Issues by E.O. Wilson, where he gives an account of his conversion to kin selection 30 years ago, and then he says that the entire paradigm, which has been the textbook explanation, has utterly collapsed. So that's a fascinating story in and of itself, but more important and more uh, central to the talk today is that the hu anomaly of human altruism does not seem ever to have been explainable by kin selection or reciprocal altruism. So the philosopher of science, Harmon Holcomb, in his uh, philosophical survey of sociobiology 20 years in, and very supportive of sociobiology, says this. The problem of an incomplete evolutionary theory is a contradiction between expectations produced by Darwinian selection theory uh, and social data. That is, it would lead us to think that widespread altruism cannot evolve. But we observe that widespread altruism is a fact. So we have this fascinating, unexplained quandary still. And of course, the fun of science is trying to explain the unexplained. So what I want to do next is survey a couple of uh, emerging approaches to this question since sociobiology. And the first approach generally we could uh, classify as individual selection approaches. All of these have been developed specifically to explain human altruism, the apparent anomaly of human altruism. Uh, first of all, uh, Dick Alexander in his Biology of Moral Systems developed the idea of what he calls indirect reciprocity. Uh, I can help Eileen, I see somebody I know sitting there in the audience, even if she doesn't help me back, uh, as long as you see me do it, and that enhances my reputation so that on down the road I get an indirect compensation by virtue of my reputation. In fact, Alexander says this is what morality is all about, and that conscience, he says, is an alarm that goes off when our reputational bank account is being depleted. His popularizer, Robert Wright, in the best-selling book, The Moral Animal, says no parent wants to teach their children to be good. What parents really want their children to learn is how to be selfish and get away with it. Now, this may seem cynical, but there have been a number of empirical and theoretical studies and in uh, that suggest there's a lot of indirect reciprocity going on. And in fact, in many of the world's wisdom traditions and even religious traditions, the pecuniary value of reputation is affirmed. For example, the book of Proverbs says a good name is more to be desired than gold. And yet there are three problems with this. First of all, human societies involve cooperation with individuals that we don't know their reputation at all. Secondly, uh, human sacrifice, especially radical acts, for example, Holocaust rescuers, are far from being done to enhance reputations, 
uh, they're done secretly uh, with the hope that nobody ever knows because it would destroy reputations. And then lastly, uh, most of us have pretty good cheater detectors. This is a phrase uh, developed by John Tooby and Lee Cosmides here at UCSB in the Center for F-Psych. Cheater detectors, and the very thing that puts us most off in another individual is if we feel they're only doing good because they're calculating the payment in the long run. So Cornell economist Robert Frank has developed an alternative theory which he calls em uh, emotional signaling theory. This involves the observation that all the time human beings do things that don't good things that don't pay off reputationally. Simple things like tipping in an out-of-town restaurant where you'll never be back, or anonymous philanthropy, or keeping a promise uh, when it's really costly to keep it and people don't know the cost. And what Frank says, similar to philosophical notions of virtue theory, is that these acts inculcate a character disposition, which then become manifest in autonomic or involuntary facial and other behavioral cues, so that uh, actually it convinces people that uh, we're worthy of being included in the cooperative matrix. In a sense, Frank is saying virtue is its own reward, but to be rewarded, and to be virtuous, you can't be doing it for that reason. Now, um, there actually is some empirical evidence to suggest that this is the case. The psychiatrist uh, Paul Ekman up in Northern California has gone to literally uh, over a hundred different cultures with pictures of human facial expressions and seen that people have an uncanny ability to in identify interior disposition. I grew up in Northern California, by the way, and this is kind of a coincidence, but the middle person here was my fourth grade teacher, and this... this picture was snapped when she was asked, does Jeff Schloss routinely turn in his homework? The one on my left was my fifth grade teacher, and this was, it was snapped on a day where I actually did turn in my homework. And the one on my right was my sixth grade teacher, and this was snapped when she found out that she'd be having me in the seventh grade as well. In any case, in a much more specific uh, experiment, uh, just in press right now, really fascinating experiment, uh, Randy Nessie at University of Michigan had people take questionnaires that identified the extent to which they donated their life uh, in altruistic causes like soup kitchens and things, and then also had their altruism uh, assessed by uh, people who knew them well and gave them an altruism index. And then listen to this. He had them simply sit in front of a video camera and recite the story of Little Red Riding Hood, and then played the video to undergraduate students and had them pick who were the most altruistic individuals. And there was a highly non-random uh, ability to pick out the altruists just by looking at somebody reading Little Red Riding Hood into a camera. Now, the last stage in individual benefit theory, if, it, if virtue is its own reward, what could even be more virtuous? Perhaps the ability to fake virtue. Uh, however, you can't be intentionally faking it because we can read these autonomic cues. So the way to really get the benefit is to think you're more virtuous than you are. Uh, and hence emerges the idea of self-deception theory. Self-deception theory just involves the, the, the suggestion that human beings uh, overestimate their own altruistic disposition and underestimate others. So there's some fascinating uh, neuroscientific studies of this, but also some fascinating social psych studies. For example, 829,000 students were simply asked this question on an SAT test. Rate yourself in terms of your ability to get along with others. Uh, you could choose below average. Zero percent 
of 829 students rated themselves as below average, even though presumably half of them were. 60% um, rated themselves in the top 10%, and one quarter of everyone taking the test rated themselves in the upper one percentile of ability to get along with others. So this would be a reflection of self-deception theory. And by the way, a conversation that hasn't happened between science and religion that I think would be very promising is to relate this biological theory to sociological theories of religious nominalization that involve a, a substantial gap between religious profession, which people sincerely believe they believe, but in fact don't appear to believe by virtue of their actions. And in the Abrahamic traditions, prophets have been ones that have typically pointed out that gap. Not so much uh, identifying heretics as identifying individuals whose religion appeared to be self-deceived. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Okay, the thing about all these theories is that they predict ultimately there won't be altruism. In self-deception, for example, you should profess it, but not do it. And clearly, we seem to have altruism in human culture. So the last uh, strand of thinking has been an entirely different type of thinking about natural selection altogether called hierarchical selection theory. One version of it called structural hierarchy or group selection theory emphasizes selection operating on genes but it suggests that genes don't just play by themselves, in a sense. They're on teams. Uh, one team could be a chromosome. You're attached to other genes. Another gene could be the genome that each of you have and individuals. But there could be groups, populations, even species. Group selection theory says that even if you're not the greatest player as a gene, if you're on a good team, you can do well. So it suggests that there can be genuine sacrifice. But the dark side of group selection theory, according to its uh, most prominent advocate, David Wilson, is that it is always driven by inter-team conflict. So that what it can't explain is the radical love your enemy love, love somebody on the opposing team love. To get that, we've developed something called functional hierarchy theory. Functional hierarchy theory just says, okay, in addition to the genes, the, the team members, there's a coach, there's a manager, there's something on top which governs the behavior that emerges out of the teams. By the way, this is a radical uh, uh, theory uh, in biology recently. It's suggesting that for humans and humans alone, uh, we have influences on our behavior that are non-genetic, that are non-material. Uh, the term given here is memes. Memes are genetically irreducible, ideational replicators. Uh, in other words, uh, ideas can't be reduced to genes. For 150 years of materialism, we've viewed genes, ideas as consequences, and now we're moving back to thinking ideas have consequences. And uh, they exert what my colleague Nancy Murphy would call top-down causation. They really make a difference. Richard Dawkins has said this, uh, who holds the chair for the public understanding of science at Cambridge. We have the power to defy the selfish genes of our birth, cultivating and nurturing a pure, disinterested altruism, something that has no place in nature, something that has never existed before in the whole history of the world. He claims this by virtue of, of memes. But how do they do this? Uh, ten years later, Joseph Laprido suggested that the kinds of memes that have this influence are moral and specifically religious memes. Laprido says, conceptions of a cultural nature can thwart the self-serving thrust of the gene. 
The soul, principle among them, can be thought of as the kernel of an internalized morality reinforced by fictitious forces, whereby some humans are led to subordinate their genetic fitness and self-interest in general to the fitness and interests of others, even strangers, who are in no position to reciprocate. It's a radical statement. What can you say by way of assessment? Well, first of all, th this is rather ironic, but um, there is in this theory uh, after, again, a hundred years of resisting it on the part of the natural sciences, a reaffirmation of human uniqueness. Something's going on with human beings that doesn't appear uh, to go on. Although uh, science is always tentative, we could revisit this idea. Uh, secondly, there's an affirmation of the potency of moral and religious beliefs. They're not just effects of what's going on genetically or neuropsychologically. They actually affect uh, what is going on. But lastly, these ideas are really controversial. I mean, how on earth does a meme exert this influence? There are many critics of mimetic theory. Gunter Stent up at UC Berkeley says it's a biological absurdity to say that genes could give rise to something that opposed genes. Franz de Waal, who Nancy is going to quote in her lecture, uh, argues that at the very point where uh, it, biology becomes more, most interesting, the unique aspects of human behavior, these biologists are throwing in the towel and saying somehow it's not biological. And the philosopher Mary Midgley says that in this scenario, morality and altruism in particular is not a fulfillment of who we are as human beings, but somehow an in imposition on who we are. So I want to close by saying, uh, asking the question, is there anything we can do to integrate or reconcile these divergent accounts? And let's see. Let's see if we can explore an integrative proposal. I'm going to need to throw out some tools here uh, to do this integration. And I'll start with the issue of commitment barriers uh, de examined by game theorists. Many of you may have seen this before, but there's a classic game called Prisoner's Dilemma. Your, you and your partner are caught for a crime. If you each cooperate with one another and keep silent, uh, you have a minimum uh, penalty. But it turns out you don't know what your partner's going to do. If your partner cooperates, well, it turns out you actually do better if you defect and rat on him. If your partner defects, it turns out you still do better if you defect. So no matter what your partner does, you do better if you defect. But the same logic works for your partner. So you each end up defecting, and this is called the Nash equilibrium in honor of uh, John Nash, the game theorist about whom the movie Beautiful Mind was developed. How can we break out of this? Uh, it turns out that if you just have one-shot prisoner's dilemmas where you encounter one person once, nobody's found a solution for breaking out. But if you have what's called an iterated prisoner's dilemma, there was a famous con contest a few years ago. People proposed strategies. And the strategy that won and was able to break out was called tit for tat. Opening move is cooperate. After that, do whatever your partner does. Well, that's that works, but that's a far cry from altruism. And it turns out that John Nash's successor uh, in, in the chair at, at Princeton, uh, a game theorist by the name of Martin Novak, has changed things just a little bit. He's gone beyond tat for tit for tat, and he says, just let's imagine that the actors aren't perfect. We allow a little error. Uh, so that there's an error in communication. Maybe I think my partner's going to defect when they're not going to defect. Or maybe they defect because they're afraid, but they don't really want to defect. So Noak says that what if we introduce a strategy of generous or forgiving tit for tat? Let somebody betray me once, but then uh, I'll, and, and I'll still cooperate. Turns out 
uh, after a few iterations, that strategy completely takes over a population. But then, once that happens, things become more generous. Uh, well, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seventy times seven. What Novak has found is that if he runs the simulation long enough, unconditional cooperation emerges. This is getting close to altruism. But the fascinating thing is, once everybody is an unconditional uncoop cooperator, the community is vulnerable to invasion by wholesale cheaters. And so then it cycles back to tit for tat. How can we get out of this? Well, there are two proposals. Uh, one, an elegant proposal developed by John Tooby and Lita Cosmides here at UCSB, uh, involves the internalization of personal relationships, where it really matters to me uh, to be valued and valued by someone else. This actually, they, they don't do the game theory here, but it actually changes the payoff matrix in game theory so that uh, my friend's uh, sentence matters as much to me as mine. So you just add up the sentences, cooperation becomes the Nash equilibrium. Another possibility is social control, where you reward cooperation and you punish defection. And this is what happens, actually, by the way, in prison situations. If you rat on somebody, you do hard time. And if you build in rewards and punishments, uh, you get cooperation as uh, a stable situation. Okay, now let me close by pointing out that there's still problems with this scenario. One problem is just empirically, People cooperate all the time and, in fact, sacrifice uh, radically in situations where they're not rewarded or punished. Uh, in fact, Holocaust rescuers, for example, uh, sacrifice in situations where they would have been punished for cooperating. And secondly, we have the problem of what's called secondary free riders. You can punish defectors or free riders, but punishment costs. Who's going to punish the people that don't punish? And that's what I want to close with. Here's the proposal uh, developed recently by an anthropologist named Chris Bohm. It's a, something that I've been working on uh, as well. The first step is cognitive internalization of notions of moral reward and punishment. Uh, Chris calls this supernatural sanctions. Uh, and if we were going to return to game theory a little bit facetiously, we could just say that there's heavenly reward for doing good. And if you really believe it, uh, cooperation is the Nash equilibrium. We can modify this, by the way, for maybe a more Catholic uh, view of things. You go to purgatory, if, if you only cooperate with those who cooperate back, what credit is that to you? Even Gentiles and tax collectors do that. So you go to purgatory, but if you want heaven and sainthood, uh, you lay down your life for defectors. Or you could modify it if you're kind of a mean-spirited Calvinist. What the heck? Uh, now, the the problem uh, with this proposal, and I really think it has merit, there's a wonderful article just recently in the Journal of Theoretical Biology that works this out mathematically, and it looks promising. But the problem is you can get tertiary free riders. You can get people that don't believe this stuff. So then what do you do? Well, you could have a behavioral display, what uh, anthropologist William Irons calls costly religious practices. Uh, and it turns out there's some fascinating empirical work on this. The anthropologist Richard Sosis has actually looked at communities, how long they last before invasion by wholesale detect defection. And it turns out the black bars are religious communities, the white bars are secular communities. Uh, he had to throw out the Hutterites because they lasted so long and had been so successful that they completely biased the sample. But not only do religious communities last longer, but the more costly displays they have, the longer they last. The problem is, 
as you are beginning to guess now, you can get quaternary free riders. You can get people who only uh, exhibit costly displays to the extent that it pays off. Well, lastly then, you could have emotional or hard-to-fake religious signals. This involves actually a theory of religious experience. And if you look at the history of religious revivals and communitarian movements, very often they're tied to what people believed was a move of the spirit with autonomic ecstatic displays like speaking in tongues, quaking, shaking, fainting in the spirit. In the medieval era, there was a revival that swept through Catholic monasteries that involved what they called a uh, veil of tears experience or convulsive weeping, weeping. In the biblical tradition, all the way back to Acts, by the way, where the community was expanded in its communitarian inclusiveness as, first of all, to the Samaritans and then to the Greeks as these manifestations were progressively evident. So there's a fascinating possibility uh, for religious experience serving as hard-to-fake signals, but of course you can have quinternary free riders. Jesus himself says uh, that there will be people who spoke in tongues and cast out demons in his name, but he never knew them because they never had love, and this is where I want to conclude. The solution, a possible solution to all of these, again, uh, worked out mathematically by Herbert Gentis in this recent uh, issue of Journal for Theoretical Biology, is what Randy Nessie calls intersubjective commitment. It's a union of number two and number three, where there's practice and affect. By the way, the American philosopher and theologian Jonathan Edward, in his treatise on religious affections, made just this point. Uh, and that there ends up being, ultimately, bottom line, internalized benefits for authentic commitment and unbearable internalized costs for in inauthentic commitment. This is something which, unfortunately, the natural sciences have not looked at at all for the last century, but in the last couple of years, there's been a flourishing of studies on uh, religious commitment and inauthentic religious commitment on various measures of health, and most recently, and I'll close with this uh, datum, uh, in press, not yet out right now, is a study done by Randy Nessie at University of Michigan, where he looked at um, terminally ill patients we've known for a long time that involvement in support groups increases life expectancy for terminally ill patients. Nessie asked the question, does it make a difference of whether you're a giver or a taker in those groups? Controlling for initial degree of pathology. And it turns out if you're a taker, you actually live shorter. If you're a giver, you actually live longer. Uh, so that's my proposal for the religious internalization of altruism. I'll close with a quote from Kierkegaard that just leaves things a little bit messier uh, than uh, the simplistic uh, version of things might suggest. Kierkegaard says that hypocrisy, artifice, wiliness, and seduction stretch unconditionally as far as love does, and they can imitate true love so strikingly that there is no absolute criterion because in every expression of truth or of tr true love there exists the possibility of deception which corresponds to it exactly. Yet, to cheat oneself out of love is the most terrible deception. It's an eternal loss for which there is no reparation. Thanks for your attention.
you almost makes me want to go back into biology, which I fled as an undergraduate. I, I, I thought he was a forest ecologist. Um, obviously, he's that and much more. Our, our second speaker, and what I thought we would do tonight, uh, I've asked the speakers to limit themselves to about 25 minutes. We will have them have a, a, a mercilessly brief inter, uh, interchange after our second speaker speaks, and then we'll open it up to you, the audience, uh, to ask questions if you'd like. Um, our audio crew uh, asks that you use the microphone that is up front here. Um, our next speaker is someone who studied with, I'd have to say, one of the lights of analytical philosophy of the 20th century, the philosopher of science, Paul Feyerabend. Um, she has a degree in philosophy of science, of all things, and she is currently professor of philosophy at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, just down the road. She is also an ordained minister in the Church of the Brethren. Uh, professor Nancy Murphy has published widely on a number of topics, but particularly on the relationships between science, theology, and materialism. She is the author of seven books, and in discussions with her over lunch today, the eighth is almost out. I'm quite jealous. But her book, Theology in the Age of Scientific Reasoning, um, was awarded the American Academy of Religion Prize for Excellence. Uh, and tonight, she's going to also be speaking on altruism, and the topic of her presentation is, Is Altruism Good? There's another one of those question marks. Evolution, Ethics, and the Hunger for Theology. Professor Murphy. Well, in the ancient uh, rhetorical tradition, one of the things a speaker is supposed to do is convince the audience that uh, he or she is a good person worth trusting. And, of course, you're ordinarily supposed to do that verbally, but since we're limited to a very few minutes of talk time, what I was doing while I was sitting over there listening to Jeff's talk is trying to arrange my face to convince you that I'm really a good person. Let me begin by saying how much I appreciate arguments such as the ones Jeff has noted for the intrinsically altruistic character of humans and especially of other animals. I appreciate these arguments because given our close connections to our animal kin, I don't think we could explain how morality ever got off the ground in humans without any precursors in animals. There's much that I agree with in Jeff's presentation, but you know we're not here to set up the uh, Jeff and Nancy Mutual Admiration Society. So I'm going to do my best to push this discussion in more radical directions. My plan is first to highlight the moral ambiguity of biology. I'm going to argue that the extent to which we draw positive moral implications from animal behavior and even the extent to which we see positive traits in animals is very much shaped by the preconceptions and the purposes we bring to the study. I'll end by arguing that these preconceptions, when examined, involve worldview issues that are all related in one way or another to either a theological position or some non-theistic substitute for an account of ultimate reality. I'll begin with some of the ambiguity surrounding Darwin's own work. 
The common perception is that Darwin first developed his theory of how competition for survival produces evolutionary progress. Then, in response, the social ethic called social Darwinism was developed, including laissez-faire economics, survival of the economically fittest, and justification for failure to assist the poor. All of this on the assumption that competition for survival will drive economic progress. The history is actually more complex. Supporters of nearly every other social program, including socialism and liberalism, were also able to use Darwin's theories for support. So we see here how purposes already embraced shape the way one chooses to make use of the science. Another complication is that Darwin never argued that evolution was driven only by fierce struggle. There are other factors, such as sexual selection, the competition for mates. Now, sometimes this is conflictual, as between male elk, but sometimes only differences in appearance, as with peacock tails. Now, here's the piece of the history that I find particularly interesting. To the extent that Darwin did focus on competition for survival, there were important theological presuppositions that colored his thinking. There was the long-standing project of natural theology, the attempt to understand God's character and purposes by examining nature. William Paley was the most famous, his text being read in every seminary in Darwin's day. His view of nature is summed up in the phrase, myriads of happy beings. But published at about the same time, and this is around the year 1800, was Thomas Malthus's essay on the principle of population. Here he expressed his famous theory that, if unchecked, population will grow geometrically, while food supplies could be increased arithmetically at best. The result would be an intense struggle among rapidly growing populations for the slow-growing food supplies. This was the basis for Darwin's account of the pressure for change in the evolutionary process. It's important to note that Malthus was an Anglican clergyman working in the tradition of 18th century natural theology. So his writings were not simply a scientific treatise on population growth and food supply. Rather, they were, in a sense, a theodicy, that is, an attempt to reconcile the goodness of God with evil and suffering. In place of Paley's myriads of happy beings, Malthus sees struggle, inequality, suffering, and death as the basic features of the natural world and these are interpreted by him as the result of divine providence. So Paley had set everyone up to say that whatever the character of the natural order, this is the way God made it. Malthus's role was to say that the character of the natural world is starvation and dog-eat-dog. -dog. This then reflects on God's intentions, and it is also seen as providential. Malthus wrote that evil produces exertion, exertion produces mind, and mind produces progress. So, in the end, it's good that there is not enough food to go around. 
After Malthus, it was not uncommon for other theologians to take up the cause. Thomas Chalmers, professor of divinity at the University of Edinburgh, emphasized the necessity of moral restraint, especially sexual restraint, if the poor were to avoid the miseries to which the principle of population would lead. The necessary connection between moral weakness and misery was a reflection of the very character of God. Chalmers wrote, and I apologize for his tangled prose, it is not the lesson of conscience that God would, under the mere impulse of parental fondness for the creatures that he has made, let down the high state and sovereignty which belong to him, or that he would forbear the infliction of the penalty because of any soft or timid shrinking from the pain it would give the objects of his displeasure. When, when one looks to the disease and the agony of spirit and above all the hideous and unsparing death with its painful struggles and gloomy forebodings which are spread universally over the face of the earth, we cannot but imagine of the God who presides over such an autonomy that he is a being who will not, who will not falter from the imposition of his severity which might serve the objects of a high administration." End quote. So, a rather gloomy view of God and God's purposes. The question then is what role Darwinian theory actually played in the development of social Darwinism. Historian Robert Young says that all Darwin did was to provide a simple change in the source of the justification for social stratification. Now the basis of social stratification among rich and poor changes from a theological theodicy to a biological one in which the so-called physiological division of labor provides a scientific guarantee of the rightness of the property and work relations of industrial society. So, the theological context in which Darwin's theory was developed was largely responsible for the conflictual imagery in Darwin's language. It is not surprising, therefore, that this theory could be used to support the very same social agenda as that which contributed to its development. This then raises another question. If Darwin's perception of how nature works was influenced by thinkers such as Malthus and Chalmers, has this affected only his theory of natural selection, or has it affected his and subsequent scientists' perceptions of nature itself. I think that it has. Contemporary ethologist Franz Duval adds weight to my suggestion. His lovely book titled Good Natured recounts a vast number of observations of benevolent, cooperative, sympathetic behavior among animals. For example, a British ethologist was studying a mongoose colony. She followed the final days of a low-ranking adult male dying of chronic kidney disease. The male lived in a captive group consisting of a pair and its offspring. The, the uh, two adjustments took place. First, the sick male was allowed to eat much earlier in the rank order than previously, 
Second, the rest of the group changed from sleeping on elevated objects such as boxes to sleeping on the floor once the sick male had lost the ability to climb onto the boxes. They stayed in contact with him, grooming him much more than usual. After the male's death, the group slept with the cadaver until its decay made re removal necessary. Another example. Chimpanzees excel at so-called consolation. For example, after a fight, bystanders hug and touch the combatants, pat them on the back and groom them. It's interesting that their attentions focus more on the losers than on the winners. If such behavior does not occur quickly enough, loser chimpanzees resort to a repertoire of gestures, pouting, whimpering, begging with outstretched hands so that others will provide the needed calming contact. Duvall also analyzes the linguistic practices of his fellow biologists. He says that current scientific literature routinely depicts animals as suckers, grudgers, and cheaters who act spitefully, greedily, and murderously. Yet, if animals show tolerance or altruism, these terms are placed in quotation marks, lest their authors be judged hopelessly romantic or naive. Alternatively, positive inclinations are given negative labels, such as when preferential treatment for kin is not called love for kin, but nepotism. Duvall attributes this attitude toward animals to the theological climate of Darwin's day. And this is in a section of his book revealingly titled Calvinist Sociobiology. He sees our tendency to project negative moral qualities on animals as a result of the predominance of theological views of humans themselves as fallen and depraved. It's important to note that Duvall is careful not to go to the other extreme of providing romantic characterizations of animals. He shows due caution in asking whether terms used to describe desirable human traits can legitimately be applied to similar traits in animals. Asking, for example, if animals should be described as displaying sympathy or merely caring behavior. So, we may ask, whether nature is better captured in Paley's phrase, myriads of happy beings, or in Alfred Lord Tennyson's nature red in tooth and claw. Obviously, both are natural, and the picture is complex. The same animals that comfort one another and share food also cooperate in hunting and killing prey. Duvall points out that animals that share food tend to do so when the foodstuff is highly valued, prone to decay, too much for individual consumption, procured by skill or strength, and most effectively procured through collaboration. In short, the food most likely to be shared is meat killed in a hunt. He speculates that this tendency, shaped among social animals by evolutionary necessity, creates a predisposition among humans for sharing. While a natural tendency among animals to share food is not equivalent to human generosity, human morals cannot be entirely independent of our evolutionary past. I quote, Of our own design, 
are neither the tools of morality nor the basic needs and desires that form the substance with which it works. Natural tendencies may not amount to moral imperatives, but they do figure in our decision-making. Thus, while some human moral rules reinforce species-typical predispositions and others suppress them, none blithely ignore them." End quote. This point aptly illustrates what Duvall describes as a profound paradox. Genetic self-advancement at the expense of others has given rise to remarkable capacities for caring and sympathy. He concludes, if carnivory was indeed the catalyst for the evolution of sharing, it is hard to escape the conclusion that human morality is steeped in animal blood. When we give money to begging strangers, ship food to starving people, or vote for measures that benefit the poor, we follow impulses shaped since the time our ancestors began to cluster around meat possessors. Now, let me push a little bit further in my account of the moral ambiguity of biology. If the Calvinist clergy found justification in Darwin to refuse parish assistance to the poor, an atheist reading Darwin came to much more radical and shattering conclusions. We all assume that morality is a good thing, right? That's almost a tautology. Being good is a good thing. We disagree on a lot of the details, but we all agree that altruism is a pretty good way to sum up what all of the major traditions have in common. Love your neighbor, even at some cost to yourself. Yet Friedrich Nietzsche, German philosopher writing in the late 19th century, has called all of this radically into question. This other-regarding, benevolent, justice-seeking, self-sacrificial morality is actually slave morality. Christians and others of their kind advocate it because they are usually weak and oppressed, and so requiring justice from the rich and powerful is in their self-interest. It was people such as these who invented the distinction between good and evil, so that they, in their resentment, would have a pejorative term for those who reject their slave morality. Having the label of evil for these others feeds the masses' sense of moral superiority. Nietzsche writes, From the beginning, Christian faith has been sacrifice. Sacrifice of all freedom, of all pride, of all self-confidence of the spirit. It is simultaneously enslavement and self-derision and self-mutilation. For his part, the herd man of today's Europe gives himself the appearance of being the only permissible type of man and glorifies those characteristics that make him tame, easygoing, and useful to the herd as the true human virtues, namely public spirit, goodwill, consideration, industry, moderation, modesty, clemency, and pity. Nietzsche was influenced by a number of factors one of which was probably his rejection of the stultifying form of Lutheran piety with which he was raised. Another was the negative view of the very possibility for a peaceful social order, first coined by the early modern philosopher Thomas Hobbes. 
Hobbes's account of primordial human nature has been summarized as follows by James O'Toole, quote, In nature, man finds no stop in doing what he has the will, desire, or inclination to do. To Hobbes, the natural right of every individual in this Edenic state is the liberty each man has to use his own power for the preservation of his own nature, that is, to save his own life, and consequently of doing anything which, in his own judgment and reason, he shall conceive to be the aptest means thereunto. Here, particularly in the concluding phrase, we see a statement of a modern notion of liberty. But in the next breath, Hobbes gives it all the way, gives it all away. Unhappily, he says, in this free and natural state, the condition of life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, because there is a perpetual war of every man against every man. Hence, to procure security and the progress of civilization, humans reluctantly surrender the liberty of nature, entering into a social contract to live under the rule of law. End quote. It's revealing that O'Toole uses the phrase Edenic state to describe the state of nature. For what we have in social contract theory is a new myth of origins at variance with the account in Genesis. In fact, Hobbes's myth is the antithesis of the biblical story, at least as we receive it in the interpretation of 5th century theologian Augustine, life for the original inhabitants of the biblical Eden is cooperative, not a state of war, bountiful, not poor, idyllic, not nasty, angelic, not brutish, and everlasting. It represents an aberration, a fall, when the earth creatures assert their will, not against one another, but against God, to take that for which they have a desire and inclination. These two myths of origin reveal antithetical theories of the nature of the person, two antithetical theologies. A variety of social theorists since Hobbes have followed him in claiming that coercion is necessary to maintain society and that violence is merely the ultimate form of coercion. More particularly, Nietzsche was influenced by the heroic tradition of ancient Greece and Rome with its valuation of the qualities that made for good warriors. And he looked forward to the arrival on the scene of the Superman, characterized by pride, boldness, and spontaneity. There is scholarly debate about the extent to which Nietzsche's ideas influenced the rise and acceptance of Nazism and the eugenics movement. But apart from any actual historical exemplification, we can certainly see how different a Nietzschean society would be from one based on, as nearly as possible on the teaching of Jesus or the prophets. My favorite philosopher, Alastair McIntyre, has taken very seriously the challenge of Nietzsche's critique of traditional morality. But he finds little in modern thought with which to counter it. The development of theories in philosophical ethics, from Hobbes at the beginning to the Bloomsbury Group in the early 20th century, has been a failed attempt to provide a theoretical rationale for traditional morality 
or for a critique of Nietzsche. This has led him to conclude that modern moral discourse is in a grave state of disorder. He makes a pointed analogy. Contemporary moral discourse is comparable to a simulacrum of science. Imagine that a know-nothing regime has killed the scientists, sorry about that, Jeff, burned the books and trashed the laboratories. Much later, fragments of scientific texts are read and memorized and repeated as incantations, but there's no longer any recognition of the point of science. Similarly, McIntyre says, our moral language is a holdover from the past, but we have forgotten the original point of morality. In particular, we have forgotten the context that once gave it meaning. What we moderns and postmoderns have lost is any notion of the ultimate purpose or telos of human life. Such accounts of the human telos used to be provided by traditions, usually religious traditions, but sometimes, as in Aristotle's case, by a metaphysical tradition. McIntyre argues that the correct form of ethical claims is something like the following conditional statement. If you are to achieve your telos, then you ought to do X. It's a peculiar feature of modern Enlightenment views of ethics that their proper form has been taken to be apodictic, simply, you ought to do X. Modern philosophers have developed competing theories regarding the most basic moral claims. You ought to act so as to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number versus you ought to act so that the maxim of your actions can be willed universally. But because morality is taken to be autonomous, that is, unrelated to other knowledge, there is no way to arbitrate between these most basic construals of the moral ought. This impossibility results in the interminability of moral debates in our society. However, the interminability should not, says McIntyre, be taken as the intrinsic nature of moral discourse, but ought rather to be seen as a sign that the entire Enlightenment project has taken a wrong turn. The wrong turn was the attempt to free morality and ethical reasoning from religious tradition. For it is traditions, as I just noted, that provide the starting point for settling moral disputes. They provide the resources for answering the question, what is the greatest good for humankind? Is it happiness? Is it living in accord with the dictates of reason? Is it a just heavenly reward? Or is it more complex than any of these? So theology or metaphysics provides a concept of the purpose for human life. Ethics is the discipline that works out answers to the question, how ought we to live in order to achieve our highest ends? In addition, McIntyre argues, such theories of human flourishing can only be fully understood insofar as we know how they have been or could be socially embodied. So the social sciences are the, the descriptive side of a coin whose reverse normative side is ethics. Thus, McIntyre's contribution here is to argue that the modern view that in, insulates moral reasoning from knowledge of the nature of reality 
both theological and scientific, is an aberration. Ethics needs theology, or some substitute for theology, and the sciences, particularly the social sciences, need ethics. This brings me to the subtitle of my presentation, Evolution, Ethics, and the Hunger for Theology. I'm using theology broadly to refer to any account of ultimate reality. Marxism has a telos, a secularized kingdom of God. Scientific materialism has an account of ultimate reality. In Carl Sagan's memorable terms, the universe is all that is and all that was and all that ever will be. The connections between a straightforwardly theological account of ultimate reality and prescriptions for the good life are usually drawn clearly. In my Catholic days, we memorized the Baltimore Catechism's answer. The purpose of life is to know, love, and serve God in this life and to be happy with him in the next. The connections between an account of the material universe as ultimate reality and prescriptions for living are more tenuous. But one version is that the best that we can achieve is the courage to face the fact that the human race is a cosmic accident, and we must therefore create as much meaning during our short individual and species lifespan as possible. So my proposal is that ethics is a discipline nested within a hierarchy of other disciplines, each of which focuses on its own proper subject matter, but each is necessarily restricted by the disciplines below. I put biology, psychology, the social sciences, and ethics in order. Recall my quotation from Duvall, indicating the way ethics is restricted from below by biology. Of our own design are neither the tools of morality nor the basic needs and desires that form the substance with which it works. Natural tendencies may not amount to moral imperatives, but they do figure in our decision-making. Thus, while some moral rules reinforce species-typical predispositions and others suppress them, none blithely ignore them. But each discipline raises what I call boundary questions, questions that can be framed at one level of the hierarchy but cannot be answered without moving to a higher level of discourse. Some obvious ones arise out of scientific cosmology. Why is there a universe at all? Why does our universe appear to be so strangely fine-tuned for the appearance of life? Traditional theology does not provide the only possible answers, but the answers probably need to come from some reflections outside of the bounds of science itself. The question I've been focusing on here is the one to which the obvious answer would seem to be a resounding yes, is altruism good? All the more so do psychology and the social sciences raise ethical questions. Should the goal of psychotherapy be to promote autonomy and self-enhancement? Is justice the highest good at which society can aim? Is violence justified because it is the only way to maintain social order? And ethics, as I have argued, necessarily raises theological boundary questions. Is God dead, as Nietzsche proclaimed, or is he alive and well, and either secretly or overtly 
working to bring about a kingdom of peace and joy in this world. I'm not at all sympathetic with any of the anti-evolution movements, but I am sympathetic with the theists who object to the promotion in the name of science of materialistic worldviews. We do have a clash of worldviews in our society, and this is the level, the level of accounts of ultimate reality where the conflicts need to be recognized and the relative merits of the arguments assessed. My late husband, James McClendon, had a good way of summing up the points I've tried to make in this short paper. He argued that Christian ethics needs to be understood as a three-stranded cord. The three he calls the social strand, the body strand, and the resurrection strand. He criticizes contemporary Christian theologians and ethicists for failing to pay attention to the moral capacities and limitations of our bodies in their relation to the rest of the inhabitants of the crust of the earth. But no account of what we should do with our bodies in society can be justified ultimately without attending to the question of God and God's purposes for the world and for the human race. Thank you. Well, evolution is uh, said to be filled with uh, mistakes and uh, these uh, long-term, perhaps, what ecologists, I believe, call stochastic movements, things that sort of take you by surprise. So I'm going to take our speakers by surprise, and instead of allowing them to continue engaging with, with each other, we invite those of you in the audience who have questions to please come up here and use the microphone and perhaps address a question to Professor Murphy or Professor Schloss. Uh, it's an open mic sort of situation, and as I always tell my students in, in class, you know, you can even take a guess if you want. It, it, it's free. So I'd like to then go ahead and open it up prior to heading for the hors d'oeuvres, which are after dinner, which we'll have in, in a few moments. Uh, to stage right here for anyone in the audience who would like to come up and ask a question of our speakers. It's hard to believe that, uh, you know, this entire audience agrees with everything that would sa was said. Um, yes, please this go ahead, is sir. actually more directed towards uh, Professor Slosh. Slosh, excuse me. Um, has anybody tried to say that altruism is more a uh, sort of an instinctual reaction, sort of like, almost like bee behavior for the whole community? And I don't mean that necessarily like a genetic thing, as much as it is that, uh, you know, bees all work together and they all uh, uh, ants, same sort of thing, even ducks. You know, there's a certain instinctual reaction to all community behavior. And I think you could even say that that relates to human beings and that perhaps we act altruistically more for the good of the, the whole? That's a great question. The answer to that is yes. I would want to uh, clarify it just a little bit. The biological view of instinctual behavior is that it is uh, genetic, uh, that the, those instincts which which enabled us to, uh, to manifest behaviors that were adaptive uh, were passed on through the genes that mediated them. So the answer to that is yes. Um, however, 
there's two issues. I, I brought this, uh, alluded to this briefly. The first explanation for, for example, the social insects that work together that was given was that they had these uh, very rigidly determined behaviors, uh, no free will in ants, it doesn't seem, uh, very rigidly determined behaviors because of the unique genetic relationship that they have to one another. It turns out that sisters are actually related to sisters with 75% uh, genetic similarity, and you're only related to your siblings by 50%. So the theory was that they actually did better not having offspring and caring for their sisters uh, than they would have done had they had their own offspring. And Robert Trivers did this fascinating experiment where he actually saw how much food uh, worker insects gave to larvae and found that they gave three times more to their si to uh, female larvae, their sisters, than they did to male larvae, their brothers, because they're only related 25% to their brothers. So long answer to your question, yes, but it turns out that that hasn't worked. That's been the theory that E.O. Wilson says has just recently collapsed. So now we've had to come up with a new explanation, and uh, it's this group selection idea that I mentioned to you, that there are actually genes that promote group behavior. That's the prevailing explanation now, a resounding yes to your question. The problem with extending it to humans is that while it may help us understand group behavior in humans, uh, the firefighters, for example, rushing in to save people on the blaze, it also explains the sign that was at ground zero the very next day, 5,000 reasons to kill them all. The, the group behavior very ably explains sacrifice for group members, but it's driven by intergroup hostilities, and there as yet isn't a compelling biological, strictly biological explanation for this outgroup or enemy love. Um, I'd agree with that, and I've seen, like you said, in ants, it's certainly a lot different than humans, but there's other instinctual behavior that happens in groups between those, for instance, ducks or something. And I've seen ducks that have just been hatched, and uh, in fact, just recently, someone was going by in a boat and threw them bread. And these were ducklings that just popped out of an egg five minutes earlier that all raced off to the bread. I can't say that that's genetic. I mean, I don't know that they were, I don't see how that that was imparted to them genetically. I'm suggesting that perhaps there's some other communication between uh, that causes instinctual instinctual behavior. I, I don't know what it is, but I'm just saying that there's a more complex instinctual behavior than just genetic. That's that's the only thing I'm proposing. So thank you. <laughs> it could be on on firm ground actually, because when Darwinism, which we kick the evening off with here, comes to America, the most popular scientific belief in America is what was called Neo-Lamarckian evolution and that would allow for some of the acquired characteristics and, and traits of learned behavior to be passed on as you suggest and in fact if I, uh, I'll let Professor Schloss correct me, but um, there are a couple little moves within modern biology to maybe bring this back at the molecular level when people are talking about things like, like memory and trying to understand how people learn things. I just want to respond quickly to that point, Nance, uh, because you've actually raised a, a point that is more important than just genetic explanations alone. Uh, biology has 
uh, for the last hundred years been very reductionistic in its approach. It's wanted to explain things at the lowest level of organization possible. So people have said that they're, they're, they're individual genes or maybe groups of genes that account uh, for most behaviors. And this last point is a good one. We may need a more complicated uh, interactive or emergentist account for things like behaviors and even development. There may, for example, be information in the environment. We know, by the way, that genes uh, interact with the environment in producing um, behavior and other phenotypes, but there may be actually not just random variables, but information in the, in the environment or in other parts of the cell that all interact. So that's a good point. What I would want to say, though, is that nevertheless, we need an organic uh, and in one sense, uh, uh, materialistic, not necessarily reductive, but a materialistic account for where instincts come from. And, and, they, and genes have to figure in, if you don't want to make that move, then you have to take the step to something like idealism that says, in addition to all these genes and everything, animals have spirits that uh, you can't weigh it, you can't see it, um, and spirits make uh, animals do things, and, and that has a history in not only religious but scientific uh, traditions as well, but that is not a view that has borne uh, scientific fruit. So it doesn't make mean it's necessarily wrong, it's just hard to know how you would go about uh, hypothesizing and, and testing uh, what we, you might consider to be idealist conceptions of, of nature. Yes, please step up to the microphone. Um, yeah, actually, I have a comment and a question, but the, but before I do that, there's what you were just talking about is a it's a it's an area that I happen to work in. It's related to this. It's called epigenetics, and what you're doing there is, I mean, it's almost going back to Lamarck in the sense that your your environment is influencing the genes that are actually passed on to to the kids. It's the old idea of the giraffe reaching up higher and higher and higher. So there is that whole area of science is kind of coming back. Um, there's evidence for it. it has to do with DNA modification. Um, so let me see my point. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm always amazed by the fascination that humans have in trying to understand humans. Um, it's an area that I stay away from. It's just, it's just so horrifically complicated. Um, uh, and so a lot of what you two were talking about was trying to understand, I mean, you started off by talking about Darwin and altruism, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm sure that you could have talked about about animal examples. For example, I didn't understand the chimpanzee one because in that case you have a, I mean, you have like the sister and the brother right there. The really hard one examples would be in an animal situation where, as you were talking about, they don't know each other. There's like zero contact, and yet there's still altruism. So when you two were talking about human behavior and altruism, I, I kept on thinking, human beings do really weird things. I mean, you were talking about Mother Teresa. Well, my wife just read an article where there was a, a woman who threw her three babies off of a wharf. I mean, it's like, so you explain that one to me. You know, it's, There is no good explanations for an enormous amount of human behavior. But the question I have is that there are, there must be some really neat examples that you didn't, neither one of you really talked about, where you show altruism in animal settings, because that's where you can really make the argument for or against Darwin. Did, did he have it right? Was he perplexed? You know, I mean, it's not about human behavior because it's just too damn complex. I, 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 I really don't understand how, how, how we could answer the kinds of questions that you guys were posing in the beginning. Um, do you understand what I'm trying to, there is a question there, and it's, are there good examples in animal evolutionary biology which clearly show altruism uh, and not 
the chimpanzee story because that chimpanzee knows the other chimpanzee. You know. Okay. Thank you. There's a famous story about a, a small child falling into the gorilla pen at a zoo, and a female gorilla rushed toward the child, and of course everybody gasped in horror. But what she did was pick up the little boy, carry him over to the gate, and lay him down gently by the gate so the keeper could get him out. So, so that's um, that gorilla wasn't related to that child. No, it wasn't, although it's not clear that that act was altruistic by a formal definition of altruism, which involves investment in another at net reproductive cost to yourself. I, I, I think, um, I want to meet you halfway on that. I think that's such an important question, and again, science is always tentative, uh, but I think what uh, consensus is right now is that the animal kingdom, and Nancy was quoting Franz de Waal, is full of what we might call proto-altruism. It's full of all sorts of, um, of cooperation uh, in unusual contexts that the, for example, emerging field of cognitive ethology uh, suggests that not only is there cooperation, but in primates and perhaps some other social mammals, uh, there is ability to sense the interior state and to uh, resonate effectively with it. And this is true in social birds, for example, uh, where the immune response of birds in a bird uh, group actually is debilitated by the death of one of their members. So there are lots and lots of examples of, uh, of not only cooperation, but uh, what Randy Nessie, I quoted him earlier, calls um, uh, intersubjective awareness. I think these are beautiful examples. I think they give us a warrant for thinking that uh, human altruism isn't just some radical disjunct. But to answer your question directly, um, radical altruism in terms of investment in the welfare of another at net reproductive cost to the actor is common in human beings, uh, not common enough, uh, but it's seen in virtually every human culture in some subsets, and it's virtually absent uh, outside of human beings. There are apocryphal examples, uh, sometimes validated, sometimes not, but it looks like we really are dealing with a uniquely challenging dimension of human behavior. E.O. Wilson calls it, quote unquote, the scandal of mammalian biology. Yes, please step up to the microphone. And if you are directing your question at either of the speakers, please do that. Yeah, I, I, either one of you may may take up this question. Uh, Professor Murphy brought up the issue of of how the modern materialistic worldview seems to lose lose its connection to ethics. Um, and I've been struggling with this. I've been thinking about this question recently in in regards as to its relationship to uh, our, our concepts of agency, the ways we think about how we are agents acting in the world. Um, and and to use a very recent, very materialistic worldview, uh, John Tooby and Lita Cosmides proposed the importance of play and of fiction in, in developing and, and sort of calibrating really complex cognitive 
brain structures, and we need these these this play and this behavior in order to get our our brains to operate in its environment in a really efficient way. And so my question is, what are the risks that we run in materialistic explanations which lack agency if human beings are adapted to hearing stories about agents do, having moral behaviors? Uh, is there a risk to to overly materialistic explanations? So either one of you. Well, I think it's necessary to distinguish between um, a materialist worldview that is reductive and a materialist worldview that is nonetheless non-reductive, uh, a point that Jeff was talking about in his paper. Uh, if you believe that uh, the material world is all that exists, and if in addition you believe that all of the causal work is being done at the lowest level of the hierarchy of complexity, then you've lost human agency from the world. But it's possible to have a materialistic worldview that is not reductionistic, that recognizes all of the levels of complexity as equally real, and recognizes that each of those, uh, the beings at each of those levels, such as human beings, do in fact have causal powers uniquely their own. And so in the case of human beings, we have the causal power to be agents. Do you want to add to that? Yeah. Boy, that's a great question. Uh, by the way, the, the cognitive ethologist Mar uh, Mark Beekoff has just come out with a new book, I don't know if you've seen it, called Fair Play. And he argues that morality, in fact, has arisen out of animal play because somehow animals in their play have a sense of the quote-unquote rules uh, for how rough you can be. And animals who break the rules get excluded from, from play. Animals who honor the rules are included. But I would want to pick up from that and say, when it comes to the human domain, um, how expandable or extendable are the rules? Uh, we talk not only about justice, uh, but about sacrifice, for example, on behalf of one another. And I, I, I would argue, uh, first of all, that to get there, uh, you have to have an agent. And, and secondly, I think to get there, there has to be a, a, a map which gives you, a cognitive map which gives you some sense of what life, and this is Nancy's point, of what life is for. Now, my own commitment is that that map is theological, but there can be other maps. Uh, Steven Weinberg, the Nobel laureate in physics, physics says that um, uh, most people are, can be pretty mischievous, but it takes religion to make somebody downright evil. And I actually think there's some truth to that. But I also think the reverse is true. Uh, that it takes uh, a moral map of what life is ultimately about to empower life uh, to great service uh, or, uh, unfortunately, to great self-expenditure on behalf of evil. I think we have time for one more question, so I'll invite you to step up to the microphone, please. You, you sort of alluded to my question. Uh, it's tongue-in-cheek, but is a suicide bomber an altruist? He is doing something which he thinks is for greater good, and it certainly comes at a great cost to himself. Um, absolutely, in the limited sense of in-group altruism. And this is the theory of group selection, uh, which I mentioned earlier. So that uh, suicide bombers uh, give their lives uh, on behalf of the cause of their group, but it's important to realize that this kind of altruistic sacrifice uh, is 
intra-group sacrifice driven by inter-group hostility. So I don't think that it's ultimately a very uh, commendable form of altruism. And uh, I mean, in, in one sense, that's self, self-evident. But uh, the, the altruism that is so very fascinating to try to explain scientifically and so morally commendable is the altruism which is uh, most challenging to attain. Uh, Love your enemy. If you just love those who love you back, to quote uh, the Synoptic Gospels, what credit is that to you? Even tax collectors do that. Okay. On on that note, I'll ask you to uh, help me thank our speakers one last time.